Hello and welcome back to Opposition Cast. I'm Nigel Fletcher and coming up on today's episode we're taking a look at the current political turmoil with the Conservative Party having nosedived in the opinion polls in the wake of its so-called mini-budget three weeks ago which sent financial markets into chaos and has produced a crisis of confidence in the leadership of the new Prime Minister Liz Truss and her Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng after barely more than a month in office. And ordinarily, we would have expected to see a new Prime Minister enjoying a honeymoon period with the electorate, with public opinion finding them a refreshing change from what's gone before, or at least giving them the benefit of the doubt. We would also have expected that a new party leader attending their first party conference a few weeks after winning a leadership election would be met by an enthusiastic victory rally with a united party cheering them to the rafters as they set out their vision for the future. Well, I think it's fair to say that was not the experience of the Conservative Party conference when it met in Birmingham last week. And sadly, I was unable to attend uh, as I planned. I'd hoped to repeat what we did in Liverpool for the Labour Party conference uh, and go around wrangling people to speak to us. But unfortunately, I uh, picked up a nasty conference cold, which is the political equivalent of Fresher's flu, uh, during the Labour Party conference, um, and I decided it was probably for the best not to share that around. I think that the Conservatives had enough problems uh, already. Um, But I don't think you needed to have been there to have picked up that it was really not a happy occasion. Everyone who has reported um, said that the mood was very grim indeed, and uh, the thing that hung over the whole conference was this uh, appalling political situation for the Conservatives, with opinion polls showing them behind Labour by between 20 and 30 points, uh, rather than any kind of uh, political bounce that they might have expected after ditching Boris Johnson and getting a new leader. Now, that dramatic loss of support for the government has provoked a fresh political crisis. Uh, Conservative MPs are getting very good at that, uh, with questions already been asked by them uh, about whether they might now look extraordinary as it might sound to change their leader yet again. Um, And in the meantime, the government being forced into a series of uh, U-turns on their economic policy with some of the central aspects of what they announced uh, being Uh, junked and discussion about whether uh, the whole thing may now be uh, reversed in order to calm the economic uh, situation and reassure the markets. So today we'll be talking about the state of the opinion polls and some of the issues around shifts in public opinion with pollster Chris Curtis before hearing more about political turmoil overall from a good friend of the podcast Professor Jane Green in an extract from her talk at our research conference back in July, which seems rather a long time ago now, if a week is a long time in politics. Um, But first to that conversation with Chris Curtis, who is a researcher with the pollster Opinion Research and previously worked for YouGov. And we began by discussing a comment which Chris had posted on his Twitter feed from veteran pollster Peter Kellner, highlighting the fact that for many years, Uh, He's been warning the Labour Party that they were not doing as well as they thought and that polls have overstated their lead. But he ends with the following observation. Something has changed, Peter Kellner says, and it's not just the way the Conservatives have collapsed. The other half of the story could matter even more. It is the recovery of the Labour Party. And so 
Uh, I started by asking Chris how significant it is that there is that side of the equation, as well as the Conservative uh, opinion poll rating falling off a cliff, the fact that Labour's numbers are also uh, increasing. Yeah, I suppose... I mean, the way I think about this is like, you're obviously yeah, a big part of being a pollster and doing political commentary is to objectively try and um, state what you think the reality is. But I often think another way of thinking about it is almost like, um, you know, like a financial trader or somebody who's uh, dealing with the betting markets. You're not just trying to explain what's happening. You're trying to explain what's happening in compared to what, in comparison to what people's expectations are. So, you, you know, it's much more interesting to be like, I think the chance of a Labour government is more than everyone else does, uh, than, you know, than just to say, yeah, I think the chance of a Labour government is likely or unlikely. And I think that's broadly what Peter was trying to articulate in this article and something I agree with, that really for most of the past 12 years, um, most, at least up until the 2019 general election, uh, most people thought the chance, or most people within Labour circles certainly, thought the chances of achieving a Labour government were much more likely than us pollsters did, and we had a range of reasons for doing so. Um, uh, broadly speaking, the, the, the argument fell into this point of the Labour Party seen as a nice but dim party, as mm. Peter Kelder puts it, the Conservative Party is seen as a smart but mean party, and Usually in British politics, the smart but mean party wins. Um, and that's probably speaking the argument we've been making to Labour people for many years who get overexcited about the chance of Labour winning. You also have to prove that the Conservative Party is a bit dim at the same time. Um, and now they've done that. Ultimately, all of the polling shows you now have a Labour Party that is, you know, it's, it's, it's not the most popular the Labour Party's ever been. Let's not lie to ourselves. Keir Starmer is not the most popular politician in the history of the United Kingdom. But their numbers across the board are pretty good. Um, more people see them, of course, as nice, as good for public services. But now more people see them as competent and good on the economy um, and all of those sort of smart metrics as well. So. I mean, for the first time, really, since Labour was kicked, first time since the financial crisis, um, the polling numbers across the board, as a pollster, you feel like you have to go, no, actually, Labour's numbers are pretty good now, the Conservatives' numbers are pretty dire. Mm. And and let's sort of take up that, that latter point about the Conservative Party's uh, numbers being, as you say, pretty dire. I mean, uh, is that um, some traditional British understatement, I think? Uh, <laughs> yeah, how, yeah. How, how, how sort of catastrophically bad are these numbers for the Conservative Party? And, and also, um, I mean, we're, we're sort of talking in the, in the wake of the Conservative Party conference with a new um, Conservative leader, a new Conservative Prime Minister. Um, if we'd been predicting a month ago or, or more what the position would look like, we would have expected to have seen at least some kind of conference bounce or a new leader bounce or both. Um, so, I mean, how sort of extraordinary is this that we're seeing these, these numbers having cratered? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, we, I expected, I mean, obviously, the, the, the situation in which Liz Truss came in to office was um, slightly odd because obviously it, it, you know, it was, she was in the office days before the Queen passed away and that kind of ruined the media cycle among other things um, which meant you know the sort of traditional honeymoon bounce it might not have happened for those reasons but what we saw in the focus groups the polling that was done in the early days was most Conservative voters were willing to give the Conservatives the benefit of the doubt so at the very least I think we were expecting those um, conservative people who voted conservative in 29 who had switched to don't know to sort of 
at least switch back to the Conservatives in polling questions um, because they were willing to say they'll come out supporting the Conservatives while they give Liz Truss a chance. It's amazing how quickly she burned through that benefit of the doubt, I think is the best way of putting it. That mini budget was catastrophic for a wide range of reasons. You know, obviously, it has upset the markets, but it is also a very bad understanding of where the public are on a lot of these economic issues and economic questions. Um, and it, it was just it was just it's very hard to understate just how dramatic that has been you know, that has had more effect on public polling than you know it, it'd definitely be in the top five um poll moving events in the history of opinion polls i'd say um in okay. terms of just how much it shifted attitudes in such a short space of time and that is because it moved that really important metric of do you trust the conservatives to be competent and the moment nobody trusts them to be competent anymore the whole thing falls apart for the Conservatives, because if the Conservatives aren't competent, most people go, well, then what are they? Why would I find a reason to vote for them? That was the reason it was so catastrophic. It came as people were generally willing to give the Liz Truss the benefit of the doubt otherwise. And given that most voters don't know anything about her other than um, the screw up with the mini budget at this stage, I think it's going to be really hard for her to come back from these numbers as well. Mm. And you say it's in the sort of top five um, poll shifting um events i mean on what sort of time scale are we looking at that is that in the history of modern polling or i mean how how unusual is it for a single event whether it's self-inflicted or otherwise to to be that significant in eroding support that dramatically or yeah, i mean i mean i say i say top five there's there's yeah it's not unlikely it, it would actually be top i don't think i just can't be bothered to go back through the history <laughs> books and it's never it's never quite comparable anyway because you know the frequency of polls and things like that but it'd be it'd definitely be one of the most significant it would be alongside uh black wednesday or Suez in terms of the, the you know the amount that is moved by one single event um but i think that um i think that also we have to bear in mind when I, when I make that point, which is that it's a lot easier for an event to be dramatically poll moving, all, less, all else being equal these days than it used to be, by which I mean the electorate is a lot more volatile now than it was 10, 20, 30, 50 years ago. It used to be the case that most working class people voted one way, most middle class people voted another way, and there was a few people in the middle who decided elections. It's not really true anymore. I mean, there's a lot of voters, particularly in the sort of post-Brexit world, there's a lot of these floating voters in the middle who are willing to swing um, between political parties, certainly a lot more than there used to be, and they're a lot more willing to swing for a lot, uh, move between parties for a lot less um, than would have previously been needed to drive them um, between political parties. So that just broadly means that, um, you know, a single event is more likely these days to have a more dramatic effect than it would have done um, in the past. And I think because of that, we have to we have to think about politics in slightly different ways. Firstly, like it, it's a lot more dangerous for political parties. I remember having these conversations with the Labour Party in the 2017 to 2019 election, but between that period, you know, when the, all of their remain voters were leaving them and they were sort of broadly like, well, they'll come back, we need to focus on the leave ones. So I was like, they won't necessarily come back anymore. The chances of an extinction level event for one of the major political parties in this country is a lot more likely than it used to be because party loyalty um, has, has fallen away so much. So, you know, I think people are asking the question about whether the Conservatives could face a situation like the Canadian Conservatives did in the early 90s. I certainly don't think that that's the kind of, I, I don't think that that's a question we shouldn't be asking right now. <laughs> um, it's a lot more likely uh, than I think people expect because because politics has become 
so volatile. I, I still think it's unlikely, but I, I, I don't think it's so unlikely that we shouldn't consider it. Um, but also, I suppose the flip side of that is that it means that you can get into a really bad place and it's a lot easier to come back, just mm. like, for example, the Conservatives did in 2019. So I still think it's very unlikely, again, that Liz Truss and the Conservatives come back from such a bad situation. But, you know, normally when a, when a party gets into the mid-20s and they're 30 points or so behind the Labour Party, you roughly rule out their chances of coming back at the next election. I mean... Things are so volatile, it is still easy come, but, you know, easy go as well. And everybody does need to bear that in mind. Mm. So, yes, I mean, I was going to come on to that, the sort of the, the volatility there that we're seeing sort of a, a you know, historically bad position for the Conservatives and, and Labour, as you say, not just benefiting from that, but also itself recovering in its own um, perception as well. But um, if there are sort of grounds for uh, any hope for, for the Conservatives to overcome um, the position that they're in. Um, what are the kind of things that would need to, to change in terms of the fundamentals? Because um, obviously the point of them junking Boris Johnson and replacing him with another leader was that they saw him as a drag on the party's electoral fortunes and they wanted to get a, a bump in the polls at that point. And so that clearly has not only not worked, but spectacularly backfired. Um, so are we looking at a situation where you know they, they, the only option is a complete reset um uh, you know has has Liz Truss completely burnt any possibility of her own credibility and uh, and public perception um being able to be changed it's this it's this issue of sort of like you, you only have one chance to make a first impression is that yeah. is that true in polling terms uh, well, I mean, there are exceptions to that rule. Jeremy Corbyn's a good example, for example, uh, in the 2017 general election campaign, where he very much got a second chance uh, to make a first impression. And that's one of the reasons why he you know, didn't win the election, but zoomed up in the polls very dramatically over a very short space of time. Um, look, it would be stupid for anybody not to say that the chances of Liz Truss being able to turn this around are very small. And I think it would be... Um, wrong at this stage given how bad the numbers are to not believe that a reset and a change in leader would on balance probably be better for the conservatives than worse um but yeah the only yeah there is probably a very small outside chance that at some point in the next couple of years there is a significant amount of growth that returns to the british economy for whatever reason and liz Truss can take credit for that before the next election and use that as our argument for the election. I took the, all of these unpopular decisions that lots of people didn't like at the mm. time, but look at all of the economic growth it's created now and all of the things we can do with that growth. I don't think anybody realistically believes that um, there's much chance of that happening, but it's the only way I could possibly see of Liz Trust staying as leader and going on um, to win the next general election. I think it's also very unlikely there's a situation where we get a new leader in and they are now able to do a good reset for the Conservatives. And, you know, there's a load of fundamentals that are still bad for the party. So they probably still lose either way. But I think you you probably have to say at this stage, they stand more chance of winning with a new leader than, than keeping those trusts in place. Mm. Um, and on that point about the economy, um, I mean, clearly that was her... Uh, her pitch that she wanted to go for growth she wanted to sort of uh, make some fairly dramatic interventions um in the hope that uh, by the time of the next election she could indeed as you say um say that these are the tough decisions that were necessary very much the kind of thatcher in 81 playbook um that, that she was obviously quite keen to uh, 
to um, to emulate. But um, even if that were were the plan, it's not always the case, is it, that a party that um, presides over economic growth and a benign economy gets rewarded for it. We look at 1997 when, by on all, on all measures, um, the economy was doing very well, but the Conservative Party had destroyed its economic credibility uh, on Black Wednesday. And so um, it, it's not as simple as that, is it? So, I mean, if we're looking at that, it, it's even worse for the Conservatives, isn't it? Because that, that slim hope that you, you suggest is there for them to turn it around and her to say, look, I made the tough decisions. It's unlikely they would get the credit for it, isn't it? <laughs> Yes, to be blunt, uh, there's there's also this problem like uh, people don't really, voters don't really have a great understanding of economic growth. And often, you know, I think people were talking about it in the Brexit referendum. It's like, well, it's not my economic growth. It's not just about growing the economy. It's about seeing that actually pass through into people's lives. And uh, however much Liz Truss said, says otherwise, there's probably going to be spending cuts over the next few years. That's going to be the kind of thing people notice that negatively impacts their lives large swathes of the population are going to in the short term get below um, inflation pay rises you know even if the economy does start growing in time for the general election and the gdp number looks good in a way that this trust can take credit for i still can't see that that's going to quickly move through to actually most people being able to say uh, i feel personally in a much better personal financial situation on the back of this i know i'm trying to give the most optimistic chance of this trust winning the general election but i still think even in that situation it's very difficult and i mean even if she does drag it but drag the conservative party back to this position of being the let's bring it back to the the previous analogy the the the, the mean but competent party mm. uh even if she does manage to drag it back in back to that position i even think that sort of you know when i say you know when you set that up usually uh, the mean but competent party beats the nice but dim party but actually after 14 years in government with a leader who isn't particularly charismatic when public services are in such a bad situation that might be the you know one of those few elections that's even an exception to that rule so like the amount of hoops she has to go through um you know firstly getting the economy growing again secondly people actually translating that into their lives and thinking it will help them and then thirdly even in that situation and um, that being enough to overcome the fact that public services were in such a bad situation and the conservatives have been in government for 14 15 years um it's just incredibly different. Mm. Um, and just to sort of take a, a step back before this sort of um, highly dramatic um, sort of uh, cliff edge that we've, we've just seen in polling terms, um, as I alluded to just then, the, the whole reason that we have a new prime minister is because Boris Johnson was uh, was was junked by the, by the Conservatives, partly because of um, you know his uh, his behaviour and uh, and the sort of uh, getting fed up with with all of that, but largely because they saw that that was having an impact on uh, on the party's popularity. Um, going into that sort of event, that mini budget um, and the new prime minister, um, things were already quite bad for the Conservatives. So, what what were the sort of fundamentals that were? Uh, is it just? Um, the length of time the party's been in government that you've got sort of 12 years there is um we've spoken to um professor jane green about this about the costs of governing that you do have this uh government's popularity degrades over a period of time unless you're able to reset as, as has been done a couple of times um how much of that was kind of already sort of on the slide and baked in can we sort of discern that things were whoever had been prime minister and whether they got a bump or not, that there were some fundamentals that are starting to, to slide there. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, the other thing, yeah, that, that's true. And I think Jane Green's point about cost of living, uh, cost of governing is is a good one. And, you know, 
I think like we're getting well into abstracts of like theory that we'll never be able to get enough sample size to test now but there probably is an argument that the fact that the government has been avoiding the cost of governing for so long means that when it eventually does happen it will happen more dramatically right mm. it's sort of like a pent-up um cost of governing that they've managed to cover up in the last few years by changing leader quickly which has hit them all at once um you know that's it's, it's i i heard somebody I, I think it was john major or somebody around the time sort of said the, the, the electoral elastic has been stretched as far as it will go i think it was just quite a nice that's analogy. a that's a that's a really good way yeah that's a really good way of putting it. It, it 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 certainly does sort of instinctively feel like that's one of the things that was happening i think also you know one of my arguments about uh boris johnson post brexit post covid is they you know a political party has to have a purpose as well now liz truss in fairness has got one which is economic growth and you know, that, that's actually the strongest thing about her. But for a lot of the period under Boris Johnson, the Conservative Party just didn't have a clear sense of purpose. And we got constant briefings out of Downing Street about most of which I assume were just completely made up rubbish just to keep the Times happy. But complete briefings out of Downing Street about what they were going to fight the next election on. And they'd just jump between stuff each week. One day it would be, you know, we fix social care by raising taxes. One minute it would be we will grow the economy, jobs, jobs, jobs. Um, you know, everybody, high wage economy, we had that for a week, you know, they fixed climate change, that was one of the things, they kept coming back and saying they were going to fight the next election on Brexit, despite the fact that they fought the last election on getting Brexit done, um, cutting immigration, sending migrants to Rwanda, it was just sort of message wise, all over the place without a sort of clear defining purpose for the party. Really, the first time in government, they haven't had a clear defining purpose. When you think back, you know, Cameron mm. had one, Mason had one to a bit. But Johnson certainly had one going into the 2019 general election. I think that was part of the issue for why we were starting to see this slow drain away from the party as well. Um, and on the other side, um, you talk about the way that Labour have uh, have recovered their position on uh, on a range of, of measures. Um, what are the things that are are still on the fundamentals challenging uh, for Labour? Is 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 Keir Starmer one of them? Um, are there uh, are there various other things that, uh, despite the sort of overall improvements, the, the sort of things that are perhaps still um, a, a drag on the ticket, as it were? Yeah, I mean, so, so sort of coming back to my. Um expectations points that I was making earlier like I think people think Keir Starmer is more unpopular than he is I mean his approval ratings many 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 people before um, have won a, um, approval ratings on those kind of numbers not least of which Boris Johnson in the 2019 general election Theresa May in the 2017 general election David Cameron in the 2015 and 2010 general election Tony Blair in the mm. 2005 general election pretty much all of those had similar or worse approval ratings uh, to what we're seeing for Keir Starmer right now. And obviously his approval ratings are significantly better um, than, to re, uh, than Liz Truss's are, than, um, uh, than Boris Johnson's were. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's, um, I, I don't think that there's much in the numbers that we're seeing for the Labour Party that, you know, obviously the Labour Party does have it tougher. They do have to, generally speaking, um, hit a higher bar in order to end up in government. And the Labour Party's popularity right now is certainly not um, on its own terms what the Labour Party's was in the mid-90s under Tony Blair. But I also don't think that there's much in the numbers um, to make you, to, 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 to sort of convince you that, that that is going to be one of the major factors that's a barrier to the Labour Party entering government at the next election. 
um, in order to answer your question, I still think it is the economy that's the biggest problem for Labour. People just instinctively do not think Labour um, is going to fight for the economy. You know, they sort of instinctively associate the Labour Party with being on the side of people and the Conservative Party is being on the side of the economy. Um, and therefore, if the big debate that's happening in politics, as it will be um, over the next few years, is on the economy, that's still not yet. You know, Labour's taken this lead on the economy, but there's still sort of that instinctive thing there that the Labour doesn't Labour Party doesn't really care about and understand it. Mm. So that is still, in my view, the biggest thing the party needs to work on and focus on. Is it possible? I mean, again, um, as you put it a, a few minutes ago, we're into the realms of kind of hypotheticals, but, you know, well, welcome to the podcast. Uh, <laughs> welcome to my world. But um, it, it does sort of feel perhaps as though um, Labour historically, if we look at the sort of post-war period, certainly, has always kind of um, been unlucky in the electoral cycle and the economic cycle, that it's always been the case that when there's been some kind of economic um, crash or crisis, uh, Labour has has been um, the one sort of holding the, the can at the time, uh, whether that's the financial crash, uh, whether it's, um, you know, a, 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 a um, public spending squeeze that's has to, had to happen um you look at sort of 19 well even pre the second world war 1931 yeah. you look at um sort of uh, the, the the early 50s um and then of course the late 70s there's always been this sort of narrative which the conservatives have been very effective at um at exploiting that the labor party crashes the economy the conservatives have to come and pick up the pieces um that's kind of always worked really in the in the post-war period because of the way things have worked out and you can argue about whether that is genuinely because one party is better at managing the economy than the other, but it has always seemed to work. Um, might we be in a situation where, as well as crashing the Conservative Party's poll ratings, uh, we're in a situation where sort of Liz Truss is almost at, at risk of breaking that cycle, which is a pretty fundamental one of politics, that actually we have a crash that sort of happens on the watch of the Conservative Party, clearly their fault um, in that sense, but also the bits of it that aren't their fault. You know, if you're being generous about it, yeah. there are all sorts of things which the government are very keen to point out to people are not within their control, but they're the ones who are in office at the time. And it could be the fact that they're the, now the ones who will carry the can for that and it sort of moves the Labour Party into a position where they're actually, for once, actually in the position of, of having a, a benign um not only a blind inheritance, but a sort of uh, sort of out of step. Is 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 that something which perhaps could change the fundamentals in the future? Uh, yeah, I mean, these things never last. I, I, these things never last forever, right? You know, I, I don't think that you know, in twenty years' time, necessarily the dynamics of the economic argument between the Conservatives and Labour um, are going to really be defined by. Uh, you know, Liz Truss screwing up now. So I don't, I don't think it's a long-term thing in the same way as David Cameron wasn't asked much about Black Wednesday in the run-up to the 2010 general election because a new thing will always come along mm. and changes the dynamic. But but the spectre of the spectre of um, sort of the winter of discontent in 1979, that, that did have a resonance which the Conservative Party came back to and back to. Um, you know, if if Labour in a position after the next election of saying, you know, we inherited a, a you know a crashed economy and we had yeah. to repair it, I mean, it could possibly be something Sorry. that they're they able to do that. Yeah, I, I see your point. I suppose, I, yeah, I see. No, I, I see and I agree with your point. I, uh, I just suppose I, I don't see this as anything new. <laughs> um, <laughs> it is right. The winter of discontent was used as an argument until it broadly stopped working as an argument anymore because enough people have moved on from it and then Black Wednesday happened and then Black Wednesday was used and then the great financial crash happened and then that was mm. you know, in 2008 and then that was used really up until 2019 when it sort of 
you know, broadly sort of now when it broadly stopped being effective and now this is going to be used going forwards into what is as most likely outcome the next Labour government um I think I, th I think that is almost certainly going to be the case um and yeah I, I would I would expect that to be the case I suppose I I, I see things slightly differently to your framing I think because I don't I wouldn't I, uh, you, you're probably I'm not a historian so you're probably much better able to speak to this than me but I I never really thought that Labour's problem was that bad events were more likely to happen on their, their watch. You know, I always, in my brain at least, it always worked in that way I've just said, where it basically just flips between bad events and bad events. Mm. The reason I've always believed it's, well, there's a few reasons, but I, I think the bigger problem is that just instinctively people think that the Conservatives are better on the economy. One reason for that, I actually think, is because they're a bit meaner. Um, mm. If you see what I mean, like they just there is something in the sort of British psyche where if somebody comes along and tells you to, okay, thanks. I sort of just do think instinctively that if there is a uh, if somebody comes along and tells you you need to drink your medicine you sort of instinctively believe them um, and you believe that the medicine's important and it's going to work. And if somebody comes along and goes, don't drink the medicine, um, have a load of sweets, you start to question whether that person really knows what's best for you. Um, and I think that's broadly why people instinctively tend to trust it. One of the reasons why people instinctively tend to trust the Conservatives more in the economy, not necessarily that events are coming along. But of course, events can override that. And this is certainly one that will. So moving on to sort of looking at kind of the, the sort of the issue of kind of opposition to governments more generally um, and sort of how you how you measure that, looking at kind of the way in which support for the Conservatives has um, has declined and then sort of dramatically dropped recently. Um, do you see certain sort of trends about groups of people who are sort of more opposed to uh, to the Conservatives um, or key groups of voters who generally are, are, are key to a, a government or a party uh, winning support? Um, sort of polling now is quite sophisticated in that way and you've got lots of data to sort of compare things. Um, in the circumstance we're looking at now, I mean, are there particular groups who the Conservative Party has has lost and who are, are key? Um, and are there particular groups that, you know, the Labour Party needs to appeal to? Are there particular sort of demographic um, trends that are, are worth noting? So I think the way I think a lot about politics over the past um, couple of decades is, uh, or, or one of the misconceptions I think that has come up is actually solved by a paper that Jane Green recently put out on economic insecurity. I think there is an argument that the Conservatives have won over, you know, people who are socio-economically defined as working class and therefore lost some people who are defined as middle class. Um, and, you know, they're therefore picking up economically insecure voters. But actually, that's not really what's happened. A big part of what's happened is there's been a change in who is economically insecure in this country. Um, and it now correlates a lot more strongly with age than it does with class. So if you're an older working class person, you're now more economically secure, you're more likely to own your home, you're more likely to have wealth, you're moving towards the Conservatives. If you're a younger uh, middle class person, vice versa, you're moving towards the Labour Party. And actually, that's a big shape of what's been happening in our politics. You know, this the argument around, I think that's a, bit, a much bigger driver of what's driven a lot of Conservative voters to... Uh, working class voters for the Conservatives, um, rather than a lot of the other things they're talking about. Having said all this, you know, we still do know that there is a big um, interaction effect between economic insecurity um, 
and uh, socially liberal, socially conservative when it comes to how people uh, vote. So in my view, the big group that will um, be important in the next election is that group of economically insecure voters who the Conservatives do hold on to because they're socially conservative. So the kind of voters who voted to leave the referendum but would struggle to pay for to fix their boiler if it broke down. Very oversimplifying some pretty complex concepts there but that's broadly the group that I think will help define um, decide the next election. They're much more likely to be working age people who didn't go to university to also massively oversimplify quite concept, complicated concepts. Those are the voters who at least, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit more complicated now because the Conservatives have lost support amongst everyone. But mm. most of the data I looked at before the latest fall in the Conservative support showed that they are the most important voters. Um, and, you know, they're the ones who were moving away from the Conservatives quickly and most likely to be switching over. Uh, to the Labour Party. I called them ones, working age, no degree voters, uh, because as we all know, you don't get any coverage uh, for political analysis these days unless you come up with a slightly stupid sounding name for something. <laughs> what was it? Mondeo Man, Worcester yeah, Woman, and... Uh, <laughs> all of the it's hardly of ever true as well. Honestly, th these, these con uh, this one I, I would argue is, uh, but it's hardly ever true because people just come up with a group that sounds instinctively right rather than one that's based in the data um, mm. and i would also argue and, that 80 percent of the time it's a man even though the data shows that women are a lot more likely to swing between political parties which is again another problem well worcester woman was a thing definitely um uh, and not bob worcester either um as far as i'm aware well um, I, I, I spoke to one person who I, who I won't name who was asked by asda to try and make asda mama thing and went through the data and went, I'm sorry, Aston Mum just isn't a thing. But they went ahead with it anyway. And I think it was the 2010 election was defined <laughs> by the importance of winning over Aston Mum for Asda's marketing campaigns. <laughs> I think it's, um, again, it's a sort of an American import, isn't it? Um, uh, sort of soccer mum, isn't it? Yeah. Um, became the sort of defining one in American party. Um, and uh, we were talking a little bit earlier about sort of the greater sort of um, volatility of, of voters. Um, and uh, uh, and again, you've uh, a couple of times um, sort of joined me in lauding uh, the great Professor Green, uh, Jane Green, uh, in, in terms of her work on voter volatility, um, which uh, leads us on quite nicely, because I think we'll have a clip of that um, on, on this episode as well from the, the talk she gave at our conference um, earlier this year. But does that make polling more difficult? I mean, in terms of the, the way that um, voters, uh, we, we, you know, we can see from the, the outcome of elections, have been more, more volatile. You said at the beginning of our, um, of our talk about um, how the sort of historically bad numbers of the Conservative Party, um, you know, are a sign of the greater volatility, but equally um, it's easy to come, easy to go. I mean, does that make polling much more challenging, that voters are just much more difficult to, to predict? Because, I mean, you, you can explain it far better than I can, but one of the, the biggest challenges um, in, in polling is, is your, your, your model and that has assumptions if if the assumptions are are changing that surely makes it much more difficult so i don't i don't think it, it isn't i don't think i don't think it is quite for the reasons that you've described because we don't make any assumptions in the work we do about voter volatility we measure it so mm. just because voters are more volatile shouldn't cause us any problems with our assumptions right because if they are more volatile we should be accurately capturing that volatility and therefore being able to report report it there's a very techie reason or a pretty techie reason why it makes things more complicated 
which is um, polls don't really work by going out and speaking to the population and asking them how they'll vote. What we're really doing is we're making sure we've got enough people who voted for all of the different parties in the poll from last time, and we're measuring change on that. So we've got enough Conservative voters, how are they voting now? We've got enough people who voted Labour last time, how are they voting now? That's actually a better way of thinking about how modern polling is done. It's about measuring how people's attitudes have changed on the last election. Mm. Now, if everybody's voting exactly, if nobody is changing their mind, um, and they're all voting exactly the same as the 2019 general election, your margin of error is basically zero because you can pretty accurately measure that nobody has changed their mind. You speak to a thousand people, every single person says they're going to um, vote the same way. Um, so you can be damned, pretty damn sure that everybody's going to vote exactly the same way. If everybody's changing their mind, you've got the other end of the extreme and that in introduces a lot more uh, margin for error in your polls. If you were actually to try and work out an accurate margin for error in modern polling, it would be related to how many people are changing their mind on the last election. Therefore, it is fair that the margin of error of a poll does increase as um, change on the last election increases, um, which is, I think, slightly slightly different to what you asked me. But I think that is a reason why volatility usually leads to um, more inaccurate polling. 1997 is a very good example of that, I think, where basically there were so many Conservative voters who moved away from the Labour Party. If there was any bias in the sample, those polls would then overstate um, the shift of that. And that's mm. probably, I think, it's, I don't think it's unreasonable to think that that's also something that's, that's probably happening in the polls now. I think there are lots of pollsters who are almost certainly overstating Labour leads right now for, for various reasons. Mm. Well, that's what's striking, isn't it, about the, the most recent um, sort of series of polls that you have um, some which are giving Labour a 33% lead, some some that are giving a sort of 20% lead. Um, now, those are both sort of very sizable uh, leads for Labour and very big numbers for Labour, but the difference between those two is quite significant. It's only the fact that they're both, you know, huge numbers. Um, so there is a lot of difference there. Um, and as you say, that could be a, an indication um, of that. I was also struck by, um, I don't know if you read it as well, um, the piece by uh, Danny Finkelstein last week as well, when he was uh, talking about um, the expectation voters had and that politicians had of the outcome of the election um, in 1997, where he, yeah. he was uh, saying that the um, the expectation was clearly that the Conservatives were going to lose, but nobody really thought that a landslide of that proportions uh, was going to happen. And that had they thought that, he, his uh, supposition is that if more people had believed that was going to happen, it could have been even worse. Um, so I just wanted to sort of um, maybe end on the sort of uh, the kind of apocalyptic note uh, of, uh, you know, the possibility, as you say, that we can't rule out of there being um, a kind of extinction level event for the Conservative Party, given this volatility. Um, do you think that greater awareness by voters of what other voters are doing has an impact in the way that, that he was suggesting that the fact that you know polls do create an atmosphere they certainly move the political narrative um do you think there is an element to which you know polls showing the conservative party historically unpopular uh, and heading for a, a, a sort of historic defeat um and labor doing very well can have an influence on on how people view those parties and therefore sort of feed on itself yeah i mean a bit but i still think that there's lots of I mean, maybe not. It's always hard to tell. But I think coming back to what we started with, there's, there's, I still think that we're, it's not dissimilar to the 90s. I still think that really, most big political stakeholders, journalists, etc, still probably don't think it's as bad for the Conservatives as the polls indicate. Um, 
I still still think that's broadly where we are. There's an article that I'm incre increasingly tempted to write. It might do after the after next election, which is it's the sun what lost it. Um, you know, we keep talking about um, you know why why things have got so badly for the Conservatives. Another reason I believe is because they the party has put themselves in a bit of a filter bubble where they've listened to what the right wing press say a lot of the time and think that's how the country thinks. And mm. you know the fact that a few newspapers in particular, but, you know, they've got their own TV channels now, for God's sake. Um, I, you know, <laughs> lots of Conservative MPs are reading these and they're seeing them giving them very um, good coverage, even when they're, you know, doing pretty badly. I think that's sort of driven them into a position of no longer sort of quite appreciating where the public stands. And I still think that's probably a, a fairly strong driving force. And I think that, you know, still means that they're probably, we probably will be in a situation where, the, yeah, the, the Conservatives probably underestimate how are much more likely to underestimate rather than overestimate how bad things are. And therefore, you know, the idea of a wipeout, probably not an extinction level event, but we shouldn't rule it out, I think is still on the cards. Because I, I don't think that there's a there's a good chance that the Conservatives will put in place the best strategy because these lots of forces are pushing them in the wrong direction. Mm. Great. Well, uh, great talking to you, and uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast. I'm sure um, as the uh, the months go on, um, we we may uh, we may speak again. But uh, uh, thanks very much for joining us, and uh, see you soon. Thank you, Chris Curtis, there from the Opinion Pulse's Opinion Research, and uh, some fairly bleak news for the Conservative Party there in what he says about the fact that. Um, if anything, Conservative MPs and activists may be underestimating the potential for a complete wipeout. Um, but if uh, they are looking for uh, any cheering news, the best I can uh, suggest from all of that was uh, the last uh, uh, quote from Chris, that uh, probably not an extinction-level event was about as good as it got uh, in terms of the, the outlook for the Conservative Party. Um, and, of course, on the other side of the coin, interesting to talk about um, where Labour sits in terms of it, its fundamentals and this very interesting point that I was keen to explore about the relationship between economic competence and the reputation of parties um, and uh, and their success at elections and, uh, and whether we might be seeing uh, some kind of change going on there. Um, so I really enjoyed that discussion. Not the best uh, sound quality uh, we've ever had, so apologies um, for that. But uh, I think well worth um, persevering uh, to listen to Chris and hope to speak to him again in the future. So uh, moving on, and as promised, I'm able to bring you some more from our very great friend uh, on the podcast and indeed in the Centre for Opposition Studies, uh, Professor Jane Green who we spoke to briefly on the last episode after I accosted her in a corridor in Liverpool at the uh, Labour Party conference. Now, Jane has worked for many years um, on issues of um, public opinion and the uh, British Election Survey, for example, and uh, the sort of academic study of shifts in uh, voter behaviour and um, public opinion. So it's very fitting that after we've had a, a discussion on current polling uh, with Chris... Um, that we are able to bring you um, this from Jane. Now, this is um, the keynote address that she gave at our Opposition Studies Conference at the start of July. And if a week is a long time in politics, clearly a lot has moved on since then. There's some references um, during the course of it to uh, what was going on that day, which was the sort of the end of Boris Johnson's 
uh, premiership. Um, but also, Jane mentions uh, during the course of her talk um, the current polling situation with Labour perhaps not benefiting as much from the Conservatives' decline. Well, as we've just heard from Chris, that position has changed since then. So um, so with those caveats that there are some things um, in the course of, of the talk that even in the few months we've had since uh, Jane gave this excellent um, address uh, that have um, changed slightly, and uh, I'm sure we'll uh, want to come back to her as the, the months go on to talk, talk to her as well about how things are likely to change. So with those caveats um, and without further ado, I'm very pleased to uh, hand over to Jane Green with her keynote address to the Opposition Studies Conference in July. Thank you so much, everybody. And thanks um, thanks to Nigel for inviting me and thank you all for listening. Um, so yeah, so um, I'm going to talk about oppositions and the electorate and um, Nigel very kindly invited me and it's a little while since I've been working on oppositions. Um, so since we started working on the British election study, my research has been a little bit more focused on kind of contemporary British political problems, which have obviously um, kept on being the gift that keeps on giving and um, contemporary elections, and of course we've had loads of those. I'm very impressed by the way that you don't have a kind of PMQ's camera up on the other side of the room right now, so we can all watch the other thing that's going on at the moment. Um, but uh, anyway, thank you for listening to me and not watching that, that's very good of you. But, um, but what I wanted to do was talk about kind of lessons that I think some of my research gives us about oppositions and what kinds of strategies and considerations opposition parties might need to um, factor into their strategic decisions. And this may be things that already are factored into strategic decisions, or it might be insights that are not yet factored into strategic decisions, who knows? Um, I, I'm sure the people, you all could tell me more about that than I can you. Um, so the book that I'm gonna be, let's have a look, see if this works. Is it better if I just click the little arrow? There we go, okay. Um, so this is a book that we published in 2017, The Politics of Competence. It was myself and uh, Will Jennings. Will's at the University of Southampton. And what we wanted to do there was respond to a really disparate literature around the concept of performance and competence. Now, the reason that performance and competence is so important for governing parties and opposition parties is of course, it's very difficult for opposition parties to demonstrate competence. It's very easy for governing parties to demonstrate incompetence. Um, and so there's an asymmetry there in particular. So if we think about all of the different kind of ways of thinking about vote choice, we might think about theories, we might think about leaders, we might think about policy positions, we might think about kind of partisanship and those kind of deeper, more sociological um, relationships of people's experiences and also their demographics, their vote choice. But competence is one of the kind of key electoral considerations where we really need to think about governments and opposition differently. And it's also because of kind of the difficulties in assessing the effects of opposition per se, it's also an area where it um, but it's very important to study because if we think about kind of analyzing electoral choice, which is what I focus on, then, you know, essentially you're always comparing one party's choice with another party's choice. And yet one of those parties is a party in government and one of those parties or many of those parties are parties in opposition. 
And our kind of starting point was that voters, um, members of the public should really think about these parties in different ways because of systematic differences in competition and electoral choice. Um, so the politics of competence. So I'm gonna draw out five kind of lessons or five insights or, or really just five kind of takeaways that I think are relevant to oppositions and governments and thinking about oppositions. And I don't want to, um, to do any more than really just throw out some concepts and some ideas and see what you'll think about them. Um, and I'd be interested in your, in your thoughts about things that we might have missed and things that might be interesting to pick up after this. Um, sorry. Okay, so the first thing to note, I hope you can see this um, at the back is, and I'll read it out just in case you can't, but there's a competence delivery asymmetry between incumbents and opposition. So we know what are the asymmetries in, in terms of political choice? Well, we know that there's an enormous asymmetry in terms of media attention and media focus on mainstream parties versus niche parties or ch uh, smaller challenger parties, but also between governments and opposition. So it's much easier for the governing party to shape the agenda. The, as a gender setting or a gender shaping party, we think about lots of research in the past about how parties can kind of shape the terms of debate, set the what's ish, what, which issues are salient, determine what the focus is in, in the legislature, then that all really focuses on governing parties, especially if you think about some of the more broader societal economic kind of transformations that governing parties are able to sit, set in train, which really have profound, quite deep and profound and long lasting consequences on public opinion, public attitudes and voting. So we know there's that asymmetry, but one of the key things is there's an asymmetry here between governing parties and oppositions, because of course, what I said just now is that it's much easier for governing parties to demonstrate performance because they are able to perform, um, but also it's more easy for governing parties to demonstrate incompetence um, in terms of their delivery on policy issues. So what does that mean for the kinds of strategies and the kinds of things that opposition parties can do? And the very first thing I ever worked on, actually the second thing I ever worked on, um, and it was the subject of my, my doctoral dissertation at the time, was looking at the conservatives in opposition um, in the early 2000s and kind of asking the question about what should the conservatives have really been doing given that the public didn't trust them on many issues. And so what was a vote maximizing strategy for a party who wasn't actually trusted on many issues apart from a small select group of issues? And what were the implications of focusing on those? Um, and so it's difficult for parties and opposition to demonstrate competence. Oh, sorry, I messed this up again. Let me just press the right button. Okay, so the, so the first point is that there's this asymmetry between governments and oppositions on competence. The second point in the book is that we really wanted to understand this concept of issue ownership. Now, the concept of issue ownership was devised by John Petrosik, or at least that's the term issue ownership um, was devised by John Petrosik, but a lot of Bajan Farley's work talked about this concept too. And the idea here is that parties in our minds are associated with different issues. And though, therefore, we tend to trust different parties on different issues, because when we think of left parties, we associate those parties with some issues. When we think about right parties, we think about, um, we associate those parties with other issues. But also parties themselves have kind of claimed issue ownership. They've claimed credibility and competence advantages on different issues. And there's a big literature about why parties would then try to focus voters' minds on the issues that they own in campaigns and election campaigns. 
um, essentially because those are the only areas where you have credibility or you can demonstrate competence or trusted in the minds of voters. So it benefits you if those issues become salient or, or another way of thinking about that is that you would do better amongst um, subgroups of the electorate for whom your owned issues are also the issues that really matter to those individuals. Um, but the interesting thing about issue ownership is that it's a lot more than competence. It's really about trustworthiness. It can be lost in government. And one of the things that we wanted to do was examine just the durability of this kind of concept. And so there's been a lot of, um, as, you know, there were lots of people making assumptions that your owned issues were your owned issues. And it was really difficult to lose or to win different ownership of issues. And what we showed um, in our analysis, we looked at case studies in different countries over very long periods of time, drawing on thousands and thousands of kind of opinion polls of trustworthiness of parties on different issues, is, is that it was indeed possible and indeed quite frequent that governing parties lost ownership of their issues, normally through crises, normally through big performance failures. And this does allow opposition parties to kind of what's called trespass onto the owned issues of another party. And so what can opposition parties do? Well, opposition parties can really think about when those governing parties lose ownership of issues or lose credibility of issues, that those are the moments to potentially trespass onto other issues. But also issue ownership isn't just about competence. It's not just about delivery. It's all about also about representation over the long term of issues and groups. It's about policy positions and credibility. And so other colleagues um, have analyzed the result of looking really extreme on your, on your perceptions of competence and showing that indeed moderate positions tend to lend towards more competent evaluations on the whole. But it also denotes some kind of long-standing commitment. And I think that's another lesson for some parties in opposition is that you know maintaining credibility and ownership of your issues those long-standing issues that you have developed a reputation for, essentially this is your brand, right? This is developing you know, or maintaining a brand where you assign commitment and reputation and representation on certain issues, certain electoral groups. And this is something that opposition parties can cater to in terms of the um, their reputations on issues, but also issue ownership is lost and won fairly frequently over time. And this is something that would benefit opposition parties, even though they can't demonstrate performance, they can seize on the loss of competence of, um, of governing parties. Um, so this was um, one of the, oh, sorry, one of the insights that we drew from the book. One of the other um, interesting puzzles, um, which we felt had been under researched and, um, and really was one of, probably this the, the most common and if you say most law-like trend in politics so one of these things there's loads of these kind of concepts aren't there or several of these concepts I should say that we kind of think we kind of we know but there's not a lot of research on them and we don't understand them in terms of the driving mechanisms behind them particularly well and the one we wanted to focus on here was costs of ruling so what are the costs of ruling the costs of ruling are the expectation that over time, most governing parties lose support, essentially. It's very unlikely that you see an inc a substantial increase in support over subsequent elections if you're in government. So why is that? What is it? Is it, is it the fact that government, governing parties just kind of exhaust themselves? 
Do they get really tired? Is it because voters actually inflate their expectations at the beginning of a period of government and that that inflation of expectations can only therefore fall? Is it a kind of ceiling effect where there's only one way to go? Is it the fact that actually opinion polls are somewhat misleading because there's a bandwagon effect? So a governing party wins an election, voters tend to swing behind the winning party, and that then assigns these governing parties to this so-called honeymoon period. Or is it because you do genuinely have this period where you start in government with a kind of license to do whatever you you almost whatever you like. I mean, there's this kind of one of the other things that we talk about every time we say we, I mean, commentators and journalists and academics, I think, join in too, is this idea that, you know, the, the first hundred days, that's what really matters in the beginning of government. You know, we, we kind of have this sense that there's a dynamic nature to the way that the public evaluates a party in government. And so we looked at this question, we tried to understand it better. And there is, you know, there's some research that talks about bandwagon effects. Jim Stimson's done some brilliant work. And also um, Muller had done some really interesting work on this too. Um, but we wanted to like sort of say, okay, well now we've got like the benefit of a lot more data over time. Let's look at just how regular this cost of ruling pattern is. And let's see if we can try to model some of the explanations that we might have to, uh, to account for it. Um, and so I'm not gonna show you all the data here. It's all in the book. Um, and there are examples where government governing parties don't follow this cost of ruling trend. Um, certainly, if you think about Angela Merkel, you're probably all thinking about the Conservatives since um, since the coalition government. And there's a re that's that's fascinating. Um, I have lots of thoughts on why the Conservatives have been increasing their vote share subsequent to um, being in government for so long. Um, but one of the things that we did, we accumulated a ton of, um, we accumulated a ton of data cross-nationally over time, looking at these costs of ruling trends. And essentially our observation was the following. The first thing was, was that parties in opposition who have just lost an election tended to be blamed for the first period of government. So, so that's kind of, that makes sense, right? That you would say, well, look, this party that's now one power can't be held to account for the things that are going wrong in the very early stages of their government because policy doesn't just, you know, have instant effects when we're experiencing the effects of decisions that have been made previously. So that was the first thing that we discovered. The second thing that we discovered was that there seems to be a sort of cumulative effect of blame. And our argument here was that blame is weighted in voters' minds more than credit. Because if you think about like the kind of negativity biases that we have, the negativity biases that individuals have, and there's a ton of psychology literature to show that we kind of tend to focus on negatives rather than positives. And there's books by Chris Blasian and um, uh, Stuart Soroka that talk about this negativity effects as well. But also there's negativity bias in the media. So the media is not there to go and say, well done, well done, well done. You know, that doesn't happen. What you know, the media are there to do is to highlight where there are problems and also what the opposition's role is to do is also to highlight where there are problems. And so there's this huge kind of bias on the negatives. Um, and so we were examining, like, can we see if there's this kind of cumulative effect? And, and that's what we argued and that's what we gave some evidence to support as well. And then at the end of a party's period of government, you tend to see an uptick. And again, that's a kind of really interesting question. 
part of that could be the timing of elections. So you only, so obviously the timing of the beginning of a governing party's period in government is not random, right? And the, the choosing of the end of the governing party's period in government is also not random. Um, was that a kind of a real election timing effect? Was it something to do with voters where they look at the other party in opposition and then say, oh, actually this, maybe it's the devil you know is better than the, this kind of leap into the unknown. Or was there something kind of kind of in the psychology of kind of just how much these kind of cumulative um, effects of blame start to just essentially have diminishing returns? And that's one of the that's that's what we argued. We argued that uh, we again provided some evidence to suggest that there were diminishing returns, essentially, that this accumulation kind of started to like we, people had made up their minds and it didn't matter as much if they heard increasing amounts of bad information after a certain point. Um, and so why is this interesting for opposition parties? Well, for opposition parties, I think, you know, one of the interesting things there is that the blame game is a dynamic exercise, you know, like on average, not every single time, but on average, there is gonna be most likely after some time, a decline in a governing party's popularity. That is very, very common trend across nations, across election periods, across parties in government, whichever parties in government doesn't seem to really affect that particular trend. And I think that's very interesting for how you then approach a period of time in opposition. Because essentially, if you go and allocate all these kind of theories of blame and attribution as a kind of one size fits all explanation, then you're not gonna take account of the fact that there's a dynamic process that's happening here on average for parties in government. And I think I'll come up with some, um, I have some questions at the end of things I think we don't know. And that's why I called this, I just put the title of these slides, um, answers and questions rather than questions and answers, because I think we now have, you know, I think there are some things we know about these kinds of dynamics and relationships. And there's a ton of really important, interesting things that we really don't understand very well. And part of that is because a really difficult thing to study and it's a really difficult thing to study because if you're saying that there's something systematic about op oppositions, then of course what you need is lots of oppositions with lots of alternating parties so that you're not saying something specific about parties rather than oppositions or specific something specific about context and timing in one particular time frame rather than something that might generalize to oppositions as a whole. So it's a really difficult thing to study, I think, this kind of the dynamics of opposition and part, um, governing parties per se. Um, so, oh yeah, so these costs of ruling, this blame can be politicized and extended. And here, um, this, I'm sorry, this was a bit, I didn't mean to do a sort of plug for books that I've been involved in, but I guess I was also asked to talk about things I've done. So that's a kind of um, effect of that. But um, our electoral shocks book, so we wrote a book after the 2017 and um, 2015 general elections um, called Electoral Shocks. And one of the chapters there um, looks at just how long the blame for the financial crisis extended after 2010. So if you look at, think about economic voting theories, you would think, well, the Labour Party was punished in 2010 for the financial crisis. I mean, you can argue about whether or not the Labour Party was blamed for the financial crisis. You can, you know, you think about all the different reasons for the fact that Labour lost the election in 2010. But actually, if you look at, if you go and hone in on this effect of the economic evaluations in 2010, what we find is that the Conservatives in coalition 
during that period under George, when George Osborne was chancellor, were very successful at, at, at extending that blame game against the outgoing Labour government. So whilst I was saying before that governing um, opposition parties or new opposition parties that have previously been in government still get the blame for things that are happening, which makes sense, what we saw in this particular example was an extenuation of that blame game, a sort of allocation of um, attribution. And you can see that looking at the same individuals over time in the British election study panel that follows those same individuals from 2010 through to 2015. And UKIP were the beneficiaries of people that evaluated the economy most negatively in 2010. So it's a really interesting period where this blame game was really very successful, I think, on the then um, opposition party under then Ed Miliband. And that, of course, that was tied up with responsibility for the deficit, with the justification for austerity. And that was, you know, the reason why that blame game was particularly politically powerful and also needed by the Conservatives. Um, so the next point is that there's an endogeneity and asymmetry. I'm sorry, that's a horrible phrase. Now I say it out loud. Um, so if we think about endogeneity, what we think about is, you know, whether or not I dislike or I think a party is not very competent because I just don't like them or because I do like them or whether I think a party's competent because I just do like them or don't like them. So am I a Conservative partisan? Currently looking at the Conservative party, I'm saying, actually, there's, you know, I've got some, I don't particularly like that, but it's okay because I trust them overall, da 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 da, da. I'm evaluating them more positively because that's, that, that fits with your prior political dispositions, your partisanship. And that's the endogeneity. And, and many of you will know that there's a big debate about the relationship of party ID on how you evaluate on all sorts of different questions, whether it be the economy, whether it be left-right politics, whether it be leader evaluations, but also on competence. So you've got on the one hand, an argument saying that this is a running tally, that what um, voters do is they constantly evaluating competence and they're adjusting and updating their partisan predispositions or their there are loyalties to a party, their preferences to a party in response to the party's performance. Or you've got, on the other hand, um, others who argue that no, there's the, the really, you know, the really strong effect is people's partisanship affecting whether or not they think a party in, in, um, is competent or not. And what we wanted to do was show that actually this depends on whether you're in government or, or opposition. And this isn't in the book, this is in a European Journal of Political Research paper that we published in 2012. And so there we are arguing that, you know, essentially the running tally model makes sense when you've got lots of cues. And you see that, you know, you'll see that the kind of updating of performance affects people's vote choices in times of economic crisis, when people can really see an obvious cue that forces them to reevaluate their political beliefs. Um, but also what we argued was that, well, for governing parties, you should see that running tally model come into effect. But for opposition parties, where you don't have as much information, over time, you should see that endogenous relationship. So you should see people's prior beliefs causing their competence assessments for opposition parties and the reverse being true for parties in government. Um, and I think I won't show you, I won't show you all the evidence for that, but I have a couple of slides where we looked at, um, we used time series data 
where we looked at different examples of governments over time in British politics between 1979 and 1997. And we were able there to at least vary a little bit whether or not it was Labour or the Conservatives in government or Labour or the Conservatives in opposition. And indeed, we found that where there was a clear, at least in terms of time series causation, which we used a measure, um, a, a, a way of looking at this called Granger causality, which is where you look at whether one variable predicts another variable better than that variable that you're predicting kind of as in beforehand in the time lag. So if you've got like vote choice at T, is that, produce, is that predicted better by vote choice at T minus one or is it um, predicted better by competence at T minus one? So you're looking at the dynamic relationship between variables. And we found if you can see that relationship, it's not always the case, it's not consistent, it really depends. But on average, you tend to see opposition parties, their Granger causation in the data, the, the vote intention predicting whether or not voters thought in aggregate terms in public opinion data, the party was more competent and for governing parties you tended to see a bit more of a sort of running tally updating of assessments. Um, so I think again that's interesting for opposition parties because it really does kind of all of this does point a little bit more to the limitations of what you can indeed do to change your reputation in opposition, the limitations but then also the opportunities because you know that the governing party is probably going to experience a decline in its ratings over time. And obviously by capitalizing on competence and crises and events, that's gonna be a way that you might gain issue ownership. You might be able to trespass onto issues. Um, so the, the last point on this slide was just the salience of competence. Um, and this was um, something that we really wanted to kind of, we really wanted to hit home this message that rather than taking a view of politics that, you know, like we've been in a funny kind of situation with a lot of literature where, you know, it's there's a tendency to say, well, I, I, I'm going to put all my eggs in this basket in terms of explaining electoral choice. I really want to focus on this particular variable and its competence and competence is very important. And, and certainly, um, you know, some of the work of the former British election study team, Harold Clark and Paul Whiteley had really focused on this competence um, element of explaining electoral choice. And that's problematic for oppositions for the reasons that we've highlighted. And it suggests that if we're always in a competence world, then that might give, you know, might give some uh, certain kind of license and leeway to governing parties as long as they're doing okay. Um, but essentially what we wanted to say was this really depends on context. So, you know, if competence becomes the, the relevant political feature of contestation, of debate, of whether or not, you know, if somebody fails, if something's gone badly wrong, if there's an economic crisis, for example, or if there's a leadership crisis, just hypothetically speaking, um, then competence is going to be a really key criterion at that particular time point, but it's not necessarily the most relevant thing all the time. There's lots of other factors here too. If you're in a period of ideological polarization, if you're, you know, if everything's about Brexit, then it's not going to be as much about competence. But if it's not all about Brexit and competence becomes the relevant factor because there's a crisis or something's gone wrong, then that's going to make that more salient at that particular time. And indeed, that's what we found looking at that we use dynamic conditional correlations, another time series, a new methodology that was um, developed by Matt Lebo to look at kind of when is, when is the relationship between variable tighter and when is it not as predictive? When is it not so correlated? And can we see that there's a systematic variation in those things according to when events and crises and elections and things happen? 
And so we found that that was indeed the case. And I think that's also relevant to oppositions that competence isn't always the relevant thing. You need to build it, you need to build your reputation as much as you possibly can, but it's not always going to be the relevant consideration. And so you see sometimes, I mean, I, I think it was interesting when we saw this with Keir Starmer, who, you know, sort of comes in as a kind of safe pair of hands and really championed the issue around competence. And then there was a lot, you know, there's been some critique of that subsequently to say, well, you can't just have competence, you know, you've got to have a message, you've got to have a clear signal as well. But of course, you've also, you know, you can't win elections if you're seen as, as being not competent. So it's a kind of necessary but not sufficient condition. Um, I'm just going to whiz through a couple of um, a, the slides that I was going to show you on the evidence because it's really not going to work in this room either with a very small um, response. But I'll just land on and finish on these four questions, which I think are really interesting for how we think about these dynamics going forward. Um, so one is how much of the costs of ruling become the benefits of opposition? So and what what factors predict whether an opposition becomes the beneficiary of those ruling costs of those costs of government? And that's not something that's very easy to assess at all, because if you're just looking at vote intention shares, you know, you really need to start looking at the variation and the don't knows and which parties are the beneficiaries of the governing parties failing performance ratings or their fa failing popularity. And I think, you know, what's interesting now is that if we if the polls are correct, then what it looks like that's happening is the Conservatives are losing their reputation for trustworthiness and competence, delivery and so on. But it's not clear yet that the Labour Party in opposition is the natural beneficiary of all of that lost support. It's certainly the beneficiary of some of it, but many more individuals have been going to don't know over time or to other parties in local elections um, and also in by-elections than, in, than indeed all to the, the Labour Party. So that's an interesting question, I think, for these kind of very important dynamics. I think the second question that I find really interesting is what kinds of opposition leaders are afforded agenda shaping attributes. And I kind of chose my wording for that quite carefully because I'm not sure that you, I mean, you might inherently have the kind of charisma or the personality or the attention grabbing political persona that might mean that you're able to shape the agenda more than another individual. But there's also complicity there from the media um, and from other actors in terms of who is afforded the ability to shape the agenda when they're not in power. And there I'm thinking about, you know, opposition leaders like Nigel Farage, who was, you know, hugely successful in getting a disproportionate amount of media attention and able to have a massive influence on the agenda um, and which issues and which kinds of voters the mainstream parties were then responding to. Um, and yet obviously didn't have the legislative representation to, to match. Um, have declines in trust affected opposition parties' abilities to convince voters of alternative policy appeals? Is there something that's changing over time in the ability of opposition parties to oppose? Um, because is the cut through of an alternative policy promise less credible now in an era where voters are less likely to trust politicians than it was in an era when voters were more likely to trust politicians. Now, the flip side of that is that when voters were more likely to trust politicians, they might have had more partisanship and more inbuilt biases towards preferred parties and less preferred parties. And Pippa Norris has just written a book on kind of skepticism in politics where she, she talks about kind of too little trust and too much trust. 
you know, that we don't need to kind of think about, I mean, I won't paraphrase her book, she would do that a million times better than I could. But you know, that one of the things, takeaways that I took from that is that, you know, we mustn't look back on kind of eras of greater loyalty and trust in politics as a golden age, um, because some of that was um, unhelpful in terms of accountability and holding politicians to account. Um, but I think that's an interesting question. And I think the flip side of that, however, is that partisan de-alignment, so the loosening of people's attachments to political parties over time, which we see in Britain, we see it in many other Western European countries too, and then also the electoral volatility that comes with that, so voters being more likely to switch between parties in subsequent elections. How does that change the game for opposition parties? Does it make it actually, is that the kind of the antidote to a loss of trust that actually voters are more likely to come to you because you're in an area where there's greater propensity for switching, greater propensity to, for voters to feel cross-pressured between different parties, for voters to look at a political party, not like what they see, and move to an alternative. So does this mean that opposition parties are in fact more able to win votes in an area of volatility than they were in an area of strong partisan alignment? Um, so those are just some questions that I was reflecting on this topic and I thought, well, okay, what did I think that we might have contributed to the understanding of governing parties and opposition parties as kind of asymmetric political forces and dynamics in terms of electoral behaviour? But if I wanted to kind of generate a set of research questions now, what would they be? And I think these would be them. However, they're very, very difficult to answer. Um, with the data and the methods that we have available, which is maybe why I haven't done it yet. Um, so thank you very much, Nigel, and look forward to questions. Well, thank you very much, Jane. And uh, we then moved on to questions. Um, not so much a question, more of a comment. Um, I've got 14 points to make. Uh, no, uh, we didn't have any of that. It was a lovely discussion that we had in the Q&A after Jane's keynote address um but uh we, we won't bring you that recording um so i think there's a lot in that and uh, as I, I said we have to have the caveat in in it that um it was made at the start of july which in modern politics is quite a long time ago uh it was on the day that boris johnson um was i think facing uh the end of his premiership um uh, with a, a sort of huge number of resignations and a rebellion um, by conservative mps um, and of course, things have moved on a little bit since then. Um, but we are once again in a situation of um, a sort of fairly dire opinion poll ratings for the Conservative Party, even more so than we were looking at then. Um, so some of the points that Jane made are, are reinforced. Others um, that she was expressing some uh, caveats for the Labour Party, perhaps are more encouraging for them in the situation that we're seeing now. So a lot in there, very interesting. Um, and uh, I think in the context of discussion, discussing um, public opinion and what we were talking to Chris about earlier on, I think very interesting um, to have those two perspectives. So, two for the price of one. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I certainly enjoyed um, the contributions from our, our two guests. Um, and uh, we'll be back in the not-too-distant future. Uh, I never make any firm promises as to when that will be, but make sure you are subscribed so that you are notified when we upload a new episode um, and do tell your friends uh, please uh, say nice things about us on Twitter and social media give us a good rating wherever it is that you get your podcasts from and all of the other things that podcast 
hosts say at this point in the program as you all switch off. Uh, I'll be back soon, but uh, in the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Uh, take care of yourselves, and I'll see you soon. You've been listening to Opposition Cast from the Centre for Opposition Studies, presented by me, Nigel Fletcher. Our theme music is by Tom Hector, and you can find us on Twitter at Opposition UK and online at oppositionstudies.net. The idea of a wipeout, probably not an extinction level event, but we shouldn't rule it out. <laughs> wipeout!